very thankful for the good prayer service and the good song service, and very thankful that you're here. Some of you have driven a distance to join us tonight, and we appreciate that effort very much. We're excited to study the Word together, talk to you this evening about the rescue mission, that is the Lord's rescue mission, His mission to save us. Everything about the ministry of Christ centers on glorifying God in the way He reaches out to us to offer us rescue from our fallen state. I hope that interests you. I hope you want to hear what God's Word says about that tonight. We have statements in the Gospels that give us a very brief or capsulary view of the Lord's rescue mission. Luke 19 and 10 is a classic example of that, where the Bible says the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, that's certainly good news. Christ come to earth to hunt down people that were lost. He found us and to offer us salvation, and He did. And that great news that Christ offers us salvation pivots on the fact that we need it. There's no real understanding of or embracing of the truth that Christ offers to rescue us until we realize we're in peril. So we've got to accept that sin is in our hearts, it's in our lives, as humans I mean in a general sense, and that it costs us our good standing with God, it puts us in physical and spiritual peril, and that we need rescue from that state. In Luke 5 and 32, he described his mission in these terms, which centers on the idea of our sinfulness when he said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Christ offering us rescue, Christ seeking us and saving us, encompasses this idea of calling us to repentance. So you see, he's not coming to just wipe away the guilt of sin, but he's coming to pull us out of sin. You see? And so this idea of rescue encompasses a sense of offering us a way to live a changed life. A life that's no longer bound up in sin's entanglements and the destruction that it brings, and instead is a life that shines the light and example of Christ and glorifies God by doing so. Now, let's get down to the particulars of that. If it is true that understanding our rescue means that we must embrace our need for rescue, and it is true, then it's fitting that we take a moment in order to understand Christ's rescue to look at our fallen state. And the story of man's original fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3 is a great place to go to come to understand that. In Genesis chapter 3, in the first six verses there, the Bible says the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. 
This story then records for us Adam and Eve's decision to eat the forbidden fruit and man's subsequent fall into sin. And this brought sin upon mankind and all the ruin that goes with it. Just like God had warned them, this caused them to be spiritually separated from God. And that separation from God is well described in the sad scene that shortly followed after God visited with Adam and Eve about their sin. We find in Genesis 3, later on now, verse 23 and 24, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every, uh, every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now I want to ask you to think about the language here. There they were. Adam and Eve in their paradise garden home with all the comforts that God had afforded them before they ruined it with sin. And now they have to leave that garden home for that garden home in some way represented God's presence. And God could not have them and their sinfulness in his presence. And so observe the language. He drove them out. There is inferred in that more than just a, look, y'all are going to have to leave. There is inferred in that language more than just a, hey, y'all follow me and let's go over here. But there's this idea of being driven out, okay? If you drive an animal out of a piece of property into an adjacent pen or off your yard or whatever like that, I mean, what is that like? Well, it, not be, it might not necessarily be totally unrestrained violence unleashed in the moment, but there's an air of force taking place. God forced them to leave His presence, and He did that because of their sin. And so that fallen condition that they brought upon mankind includes being separated from God, being driven from His presence. Isaiah 59 and 2 puts it like this, Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. Now this passage, besides speaking a rebuke against Israel of Isaiah's day, explains to us in general terms what sin does to our relationship with God. It destroys it. Sin separates us from God. Sin drives us from His presence. It's not that he's incapable of seeing us or hearing us or reaching us. It's because in the unholiness of that sinful taintedness, we're unfit, we're not suitable to be in his presence. So sin creates that condition of being separated from God. And sin by its very nature ties us up in shackles and binds us. Later on, after the, the sad saga there in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve brought sin and death in the world, those two things hurt their family grievously in the very next chapter because their son Cain sinned in offering an improper sacrifice and their other son Abel died when Cain killed him in jealous rage. And so you've got sin and death recalling upon them there from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 4. 
And God commented on the matter there in Genesis 4 and verse 7. I don't want you to notice what he said about sin. If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. What do you picture when you picture sin lying at the door? I don't know why, but I, I think of a snake right outside the door there where you open the door to go outside. And I think of a snake that's coiled up and just ready to strike. That paints an ominous picture in my mind. Sin lies at the door. If you have a snake phobia, I'm sorry. I'm going to give you nightmares talking about this. But that, that image really bothers me, and I have an idea the Lord wants it to bother us. He wants us to see sin as an ominous force that's ever-present, ever-lurking, in the very next shadow, just waiting to strike. And notice what he says about sin. He says, its desire is for you. He describes sin in anthropomorphic terms. I had to really work hard to practice to say that as wrong as I'm pretty sure I just said that. And what that means is he talks about sin as though it was a person. He speaks of sin having a desire to rule us, okay, as though it had a personality. And that's the nature of sin. Sin is not something that you can enjoy a little bit of and then set aside and forget about it. It does not work that way. That back projector went black. I don't know if any of you guys care about that. But that, whoop, there it is again. It's lying at the door waiting to go black again. <laughs> it wants to rule us, and it will. You don't just dabble a little and forget about it. Sin is made to want to control us. It is Satan's weapon to take charge of our lives and rule over us. But he says, you should rule over it. And then he goes back to kind of the impersonal terminology, speaking of sin as a concept rather than as a person. God expects us to control sin, but he says sin is going to try to control you. We've got a problem. Our fallen condition includes this inclination to sin and being bound to sin. Christ talked to some of his enemies about this very problem in John chapter 8 and verse 34 when Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. How many times have we heard someone boastfully declare, I'm not going to be a servant to anybody. I mean, okay, I guess that's a neat goal. But Jesus told his audience of detractors here, his, some of his uh, arguably most bitter enemies, that when you, when you commit sin, or meaning when you give your life over to it, when you practice it as a habit, you are sin's slave. It, it sort of strikes us as unusual when the entertainment industry gets something right, morally or ethically. And it always struck me as unusual. There's that old, I think it's a Bob Dylan song that you got to serve somebody. And it may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. 
I mean, he, but that portion of the song at least is right. We can crow and strut like a banny rooster saying, I'm my own boss, but at the end of the day, we're going to serve somebody. If not the Lord, it'll be sin. And we can mash that under the guise of it's my life and I'll live it how I want and I do what I want and I'm free, but really we're following sin around like a lapdog doing whatever it asks us to do. Just wagging our tail waiting for the next time for desire to stand up and say, hey, do this. Oh, okay. I'll go do that and keep telling myself somehow that I'm free and the master of my own will when really I'm a servant to sin's will. And the trap that God warned Cain about is the exact trap I just stepped into and its jaws are biting into my flesh and it's not going to let go. That's how sin operates. And that's something that Christ's audience struggled to understand. They argued bitterly with him on that occasion. It's, it's a pretty dramatic exchange there in John 8. But Jesus was right. And that same rebuke speaks a, an important warning to us. Sin wants to control us. We're bound to it. Something else we're bound to is death. Death is an unhappy appointment we all must keep. God explained it this way to Adam and Eve there in Genesis 3, 19. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till thou return to the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. You come from the dust, I made you from the dust, so because you sinned, now your body is going to die and decay back into the dust. We try to fill our days with being busy so we can kind of somehow forget and somehow sort of loosely think that that's everybody else but not me. And it sort of settles into this semi-comfortable, it's not that I think I'm never going to die, I just don't think I'm going to die today. And so I live today in that fleeting and vain thought that, well, I'm not going to die today. And then we get up tomorrow living that same way, and then the next day, and then the next day, and somewhere along the way, we're going to keep that certain appointment with death. Hebrews 9 and 27, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Death is a certainty. There's that old saying, maybe you've heard it, there's two things in life that's sure, and that's death and taxes. And I'm going to tell you, that saying is wrong. <laughs> there's one thing in life that's sure, and that's death. Some people never pay their taxes. Now, they're breaking the law, and I don't recommend you live that way. I'm just telling you, some people never pay their taxes. But you're going to die. It's coming sooner rather than later, and you can say all you want. Well, thanks for that little ray of sunshine. And when we get through laughing about how morbid that is, it's still true. We're steadily, ever more swiftly, pressing onward and onward, towards death's certain door because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. That is our condition from which Christ proposed to save us. Sometimes you got to really know and believe how sick you are before you decide you're going to go to the doctor. And that's one thing I think men are really great at. We're really great at refusing to go to the doctor. You've got to convince us that we're really sick, and once you lay out enough symptoms and deny us enough privileges and yell at us enough, we finally get the point that, well, maybe I'm sick. And so this information is intended to set before us to, 
to prove to us that, hey, I really do need a Savior. And the death of Jesus is more than just a touching story. It's my only hope. And so we go from understanding our condition to looking at His rescue. And to look at His rescue, I'd like to offer for your attention a prophecy He gives about that from Isaiah the prophet at Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah here speaking about the coming Messiah says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. This has a ring to it. This is one of those passages that has that help us on the way kind of ring to it. I know there's a hint here about God's wrath and some other language, but for the purposes of tonight's study, we're not going to give a thorough treatment of all that's inferred in this passage. We're going to focus on the part of this passage that promises rescue. He's preaching good tidings to the meek. That's preaching the gospel to the poor. He's binding up the brokenhearted. He's proclaiming liberty to the captives. He's opening the prison doors for those that are bound. Let's think about these things. Bind up the brokenhearted. Proclaim liberty to the captives. Open the prison of those that are bound. As we think about these things, I can see in that language things that correspond to our fallen state, to our lost condition. I see things that befit His rescue to specific aspects of our fallen condition. So let's talk about those things. Jesus read this passage, and we're going to talk about that reading in just a moment. But get this binding up brokenhearted. Think of that as healing hearts that are broken by separation from God. A feeling of guilt is our conscience telling us that we're not right with God, and that is a mind-destroying feeling. When guilt gets a hold and won't let go, we cannot live with guilt. We'll either rewire our ethics or try to dull it with substance abuse or do something to shake that feeling of guilt. We can't stand it. Our conscience, our heart is not made to stand it. Christ come to bind up that heart that's broken from those feelings of guilt. Christ came to proclaim liberty to the captives. That is to liberate those that are bound by sin, to unshackle sin's chains that have long held us. Opening the prison, those that are bound, that is released from the prison of death. Now you might try to cross-match some of that language with different expressions of our fallen condition and different expressions of the Lord's rescue, but I think it's fair to say we can see a correlation in the language there where everything he's promising in Isaiah 21 about the Lord's rescue speaks to different aspects of our fallen condition. Those are just the comparisons that we're going to emphasize in tonight's study. Now think about this in Luke 4 where Jesus read this. Jesus went to synagogue on the Sabbath. And in the Jewish custom of the way those synagogues were, 
were arranged, the way the services were operated. A Jewish man was at liberty to get up and read from the law or the prophets. And so Christ gets up and reads this reading from Isaiah 61. He says, when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those that are bruised. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister, and he sat down, and the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, if they'd had microphone equipment in the synagogues back then, that's where Jesus would have dropped his, right there. Because what he said was really profound. Listen, I'm serious. <laughs> there was an anticipation in the Jewish nation of a coming Savior, a coming Messiah. There are a lot of things about Messiah's work they didn't understand, but they knew one was coming. And their expectations about that Messiah were bound up in passages like Isaiah 61. Those were the kind of readings that defined their expectation. And so after he reads this passage that they knew was about their Messiah, that they're expecting to come sometime and help them, after he reads that, everybody's looking at him. Because what he did to them was very, very strange in their eyes. For one thing... As far as they knew, he'd never gone to school to learn how to read. And they said, how's this guy read? He's never studied letters. But for another thing, he read a passage about the Messiah, and he said, this day it's fulfilled. He's basically telling them, your Messiah has arrived, and his rescuing work has commenced. So in their understanding, they're going to recognize he's making very bold claims, if not about himself, about someone nearby. And we know today he's making that claim about himself. So yes, it was a very dramatic mic drop moment for him to say, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your eyes and in your ears. Help has arrived. What a relief that must be. We've all been praying for our brother whose arm and shoulder was trapped in a grain truck and he was pinned there for an hour and we've all struggled with that mental image of how terrible that must have been. And, you know, the sound of rescuers driving up to the barn there, boy, that must have been an amazing sound. Think about that. Help has arrived in this desperation moment where there's so much agony and so much concern. Help has arrived. You hear the sirens or see the light out of the corner of your eye or hear the voices or whatever. It's just music to your ears. When we understand the real depths of our fallen condition and the magnitude of our need for a Savior, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears is a sweet song that says help has finally arrived. And his rescue exactly fits our need. He's going to heal our hearts that are broken by guilt. Psalms 40, verse 12. 
for innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart faileth me. This is one of those songs where the psalmist sings about his feelings of overwhelming guilt before God. And there's several that are like this. When you study this one, and I think the next two in, in that sequence in Psalms, and you back up a couple of chapters into Psalms 38, when you back up to Psalms 32, you jump forward to Psalms 51, those are just a few examples of where the psalmist sings about these overwhelming feelings of guilt. This is not just a mild, well, I probably shouldn't have done that. This is something that's keeping him up at night. Innumerable evils have surrounded me, compassed me. Mine iniquities have taken hold on me. It's got him by the throat. I feel so guilty, I can't look up. You ever feel so ashamed you wanted to hang your head? They're more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart faileth me. He felt physically ill. Psalms 38, another one that I mentioned. He said in verse 4, Mine iniquities are gone over mine head as a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. This brings to my mind the image of a guy carrying a heavy pack. And it's one of those packs that starts down below the belt line, and it's so tall it goes up over the top of the head. And it's just so heavy that with every step, he's bowing lower and lower, and he's stooping, and he's trying to strain and bend his knees to hold up the load. And with every step, he's becoming more desperate and more and more convinced, I don't think I can carry this load anymore. And that was David's load of guilt. That was the heavy burden of guilt weighing upon his heart, making him feel weak, making him feel physically ill. And when Jesus said, this day this scripture is fulfilled in your ear, he's saying, folks, I've come to relieve that burden for you. I've come to take that pack off your back. Let me carry that for you. Why don't you stand up straight? And breathe the free air. That's good news. Have you ever laid there in the night watches, thrashing your pillow, trying to find a more comfortable position? You can't get it out of your mind. You just feel rotten for what you did. Why did I make that terrible mistake? You ever have those kind of feelings? where it just feels like it's going to overwhelm you. I've had those feelings. I've had those nights where your mistakes, recent and long past, find your pillow and they just dance between your ears. And it feels like such a heavy burden. And with Christ, we have a place where we can go with that burden and find sweet relief. That's a broken heart. That's a heart that's bowed down low. That's a heart that needs rescue. He come to liberate the captives, that is, set at liberty those that are bound by sin's habit, sin's treachery. In 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, 
He said regarding Timothy's mission, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. We've got the same conceptual language here that we found back in Genesis 4 and 7 about sin wanting to control you. And here he puts a personality with that sin. His name is Satan. And he set a trap. It's the snare of the devil. It's the, the trap or the snare that Satan has set. And it's taken that person captive to Satan's will. So the person living in sin thinks they're doing what they want. They think they're living their life their way, but they're not. They're doing it the devil's way. And if you're lost in sin tonight, that's what you're doing. You're not living by your will. You're living by the devil's will, and you're doing what he loves, rebelling against God. And it's a foot caught in a trap, and the teeth are digging into the flesh and hanging on. Taken captive by Satan at his will. And what did Paul tell Timothy would happen with a proper gospel ministry? He said, you'll, you'll recover people out of that trap. They can escape. They can get free. Think about how that freedom is expressed in the sweet language of Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 17, where he said, But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. <clears throat> you remember earlier when I made the observation that it's really true, we're going to serve somebody? This passage sets those two choices before us. Being a servant of sin or a servant of righteousness. And when you're a servant of sin, you're free from righteousness. You have no vestige of righteousness upon your record before God's judging view. You're guilty. But when you're a servant of righteousness, when you've made that transition with the help of the Lord's rescue, facilitated by the Lord's rescue, then you are free from sin. The trap has been opened and the flesh has been set free. That's what Christ's rescue does for us. He opens the prison of death. And death is a prison until Jesus came. Hebrews 2 talks about that in Hebrews 2 verse 14 and 15 where he said, For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus, through death, defeated death. That's part of the, the irony or the unlikely nature of his mission. He let his flesh die so that he could defeat death. And like we talked about when we talked about him establishing his church and, the, and the, the gates of the grave not stopping that, 
In death, he went toe-to-toe with the devil. You remember that, those of you who were with us for that study? He went toe-to-toe with the devil. And he sees from the devil that power of death. When you read about that over in the letters to the Asian churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, you read about him having the keys of hell and of death. And he later calls that the keys of David, which that goes back to a lot of Old Testament prophecy about him ruling on David's throne and having all that authority from God that to shorten that rather long story, it comes down to the fact that part of his authority as a king in his kingdom is now he's got the keys to death's door. And he can open that whenever he's ready. Until Jesus came and went into the world, uh, the realm of the dead and seized the power of death, until that happened, death was a prison. Death was a room that our bodies went into at the end of life's way. And Jesus went into that tomb and he kicked out the other side and he turned that room into a hallway. And he just made it a passage into the other world. Or our bodies still go to the grave. It's still appointed a man wants to die. But now our flesh, as the psalmist said, rests in hope. Because now death is no longer a room. It's a hallway through which the body passes, awaiting that command from Christ that says, Come forth. At which word the lifeless bodies of the faithful will spring forth to glorious life, glorified and immortal, forever victorious over death. In Hebrews 2 is teaching us Jesus came to die so he could win that battle for us and open the prison of death, kick the door open on the other side and let us out. So now we just pass through. So you go to the cemetery and you struggle with your grief and you search for hope, and you remember, someday you, you're going to that place too, but the Lord has made a way for you to escape. He's opened the prison. In 1 Corinthians 15, he described the hope of that resurrection event in verse 55 through 57 when he said, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It almost sounds like Paul is taunting the grave. Where is your sting? Where is your victory? Say those words over the tomb of your dear loved one. Say those words over your mother's grave over your father's grave, over your husband or your wife or your child or your sister or your brother or your dear friend. It might be hard in that moment of sorrow to understand those words, but they are real. Death's sting for the faithful Christian is only momentary because Christ brings rescue from that certain peril. There's hope because He's opened the prison. So what do we do? He proposes to heal hearts that are broken by separation from God, our hearts that are broken by guilt. 
He proposes to liberate those that are bound by sin. He proposes to release us from the prison of death. And the way we respond to that is we choose to be reconciled to God. We choose to live the new life, to answer His call to repentance. And we choose to live in hope of the resurrection, to seek heaven is our eternal home. Let's read about our response to His resurrection. His rescue. We can be reconciled in Colossians 1, verse 20 through 22. Having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself by Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. God drove them out of the garden because they were unholy, because they had sin, and God could not bear them in His sight. They were not fit to be in His presence. But Christ came and offered to reconcile us, to bring back together with God. We were alienated, he said. We were driven out of the garden, so to speak, just like Adam and Eve. We were, by virtue of our sin, God's enemy. But he's facilitated the reconciliation so that now we can be made holy and unblameable, and that means we can come back before him. We have that ministry then of reconciliation. Let's talk about our response. Our response to that is to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is the rescuer that Isaiah 61 promised. John 8 and 24, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. We've got to embrace the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died to save us. And I want to tell you something about that faith. That faith doesn't just change what you think. That faith changes what you do. That faith changes how you live. And when you understand that, you understand how faith operates in the heart of that believer. That faith calls upon us to repent of our sin. We don't rejoice in rescue of sin so we can continue wallowing in it. We rejoice, rejoice in our rescue from sin so that we can flee from it. Mark 2, 16 and 17 when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He come to call us to repent, to call us to turn, to call us to change, to call us to flee those chains that bind us to run from the sin that ruins us and give our lives over in service to Him and confess that faith we have in Him that drove us to that decision to repent. Luke 12 and verse 8, All I also I say unto you, whoever, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of God also confess before the angels of God. What sweeter sound could you hear? You talk about the sound of rescue. What sweeter sound could you hear that on judgment day, hear his voice speak to the angels about you and say, this one is mine. Wow. You talk about a feeling of relief. 
washing over you. Amazing. That's what he offers to those who confess and do what follows. And that is to act upon our faith further in doing what our Lord has asked us to do and be baptized into Christ. Mark 16 and 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. If you don't believe that he is who he claimed to be, you can never start even walking down that road of faith that calls you to follow his will. But upon properly believing in him, that faith will change not just what you think, but what you do. And you'll consent to do what he's asked you to do and be baptized into Christ. And Jesus said, salvation follows that. He didn't put it that salvation precedes being baptized. Jesus put salvation as following that. Have you taken those steps in response to his rescue? Now I want you to know, that repentance is a decision that continues to uncoil throughout your life, leading you to live that new life. It's not just a decision that I'm going to go through a short process. It's a pledge to follow Jesus instead of Satan. And that's the new life to which the Lord has called us, Romans 6, 19 through 22. I speak after manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as ye have yielded your members, servants, to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants, to righteousness, unto holiness. For where, when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then of those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and becoming servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. He said, what's the point of a sinful life? You're just a slave to sin. It owns you. It controls you. And it destroys you. It destroyed Adam and Eve. David described the destruction it brought to his heart with all of its guilt and all of its ruin. He said, what profit do you have in that? A short moment of fun followed by an eternity of God's wrath? What on earth kind of trade? Why not become a servant of righteousness, a servant of God? Because the end of that road is everlasting life. Sweet and precious rescue from the gentle hand of Jesus. And in that heart and with that life, we seek heaven. Colossians 3, the first four verses. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Seek those things which are above. That's our new life goals. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection on things above. That's our new life goal as a child of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then ye shall also appear with him in glory. That's that eternal hope. That's that heavenly home. Our condition, his rescue, and our response. That's the framework of our study of the hour. Our condition is separated from God, bound to sin, and bound to death. And his rescue is to heal and liberate and open that prison. And so our response is to be reconciled to him and live a faithful life and seek heaven is our eternal home. And that hope 
of life beyond the grave. What is your response to his rescue mission tonight? The Lord is sweetly calling you, beckoning you to his side, beckoning you to join him forever someday. He craves to reward you. Why turn that away? If you're not a Christian and you want to become a Christian, the elders in this congregation want to help you with that. They want to help you be baptized into Christ, and we'd love to help you with that right now. If you are a Christian and you need the church to pray for you, your elders will be happy to assist you with that. If we can help you in either condition, please come. Have a seat on the front while we stand and sing.